Well, welcome everybody. <laughs> Again, I just gave you some things to think about in those know, four or five pages that I referred to last week, some of the, the considerations that I don't necessarily want to go into, but uh, you can read those. Or like I said, use them to light your fire, because as cold as it is, we're still lighting fires in our house, aren't we? Unbelievable outside. So we're in chapter two now of uh, Genesis. Chapter, um, chapter one is the universal account of all matter of everything. And the apex of that is the creation of the human race in his image, in God's image. The, the term or the title, if you will, of God in chapter one is Elohim. It's translated God, but it's Elohim. Chapter two is a it's a parallel account. It is not a different account. The critic says it's a different account. That's not the right way to look at it, either grammatically or in terms of literary style or in terms of what is going on. Chapter 2 focuses on the sixth day of God's work, and the name or title of God there is Yahweh Elohim. That's very, very important because of what is detailed in that chapter. It's a, and this is the right way to look at the Bible. The Bible progressively reveals more and more about God and more and more about his plan. That is a central tenet of Scripture. Now, you may not accept that, but I mean, I don't mean you guys, but a person may not accept it, but that is how the Bible presents itself. God is progressively revealing more and more about himself, more and more about what he's doing. So that chapter 2 adds some additional revelation as to who God is. He's not only Elohim, the creator, he is Yahweh Elohim, the self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am of the universe who creates. And the focal point of chapter 2 is the creation of an institution. Marriage. It is not the focal point of the creation of who is going to be the dominion steward over God's world. It is how are the dominion stewards going to relate to one another, procreate, and demonstrate my love and my sovereignty. Answer, through marriage. So God creates that. And it's, um, it, it helps us to understand as well, that is, chapter 2 does, helps us to understand why God creates image bearers in his image. And that's, it's just a, it's a wonderful chapter. So I call, I've given a, a label to chapter two, and I call that the creation ordinance of God, and I so refer to it that way in your notes. Because in that ordinance, we see very clear, there's not any ambiguity in it, the very clear ideal God sets up for his creation. That they will rule and have dominion, stewardship over his world as husband and wife. Who will rule together equally. That doesn't mean they don't have different roles, but they will rule together equally. They both are in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. His image. But, again, that's not saying anything about role different, just saying equally with stewardship, responsibility, dominion, authority, and will procreate. They will fill the earth also with human beings who are his image bearers. 
and the gods go. And we see that as you get into chapter 2 and, and it, it, in, in chapter 3, because it's presented, in, unfortunately, in a negative sense, but that God would walk with them. God would fellowship with them. And the love that God has known through all eternity, love between Father, Son, and Spirit, which is clearly in the Bible, he wants to share with his creation. Not because he has a need. God has no needs. But because this is a decision he makes. I want to create. I want to create image bearers who have dominion over my world so I can walk and felt the intimacy and love I've enjoyed all eternity as Father, Son, and Spirit I want to share. So it's, it's a wonderful, it's, I mean, it's a wonderful way to understand what God's doing. And it, to me, at least, of course, I'm a Christian, I've studied this all my life, but to me it just gives great sense and meaning and purpose to what's going on. Because the other option is it's just a bunch of random stuff coming together. Instead of being the product of, uh, of design and purpose, as one scientist said not too many years ago, we are a cosmic accident. Now, doesn't that nurture you and encourage you and give you strength to get up in the morning and have meaning and purpose in your life that you... This is, this is a scientist, a PhD, a well-known guy. said, humanity is a cosmic accident. We are a product of random forces that have no direction, have no purpose. It just happened. So, you know, you do have to choose how you're going to think about that. The Bible is presenting God, revealing each chapter, reveals more and more of who he is and what he's doing. And in the chapter two, we see something. He is purposefully creating an institution. And so we, we started it last week, and we saw in those first couple of verses of chapter two, verse six, verse seven, verse eight, that God, is, God creates human, human beings. The word for man is Adam, and he creates him out of the ground, Adamah, the clear word play going on there, and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And that, that breath of life, as it is used through this Old Testament, is physical and spiritual um, as well as mental life. It's the holistic dimension of what it means to be a human. It's physical, but it's not only physical. It's mental and emotional, but it's not only mental and emotional. It is also spiritual. So God breathes into his image bearer's life. It is not a cosmic accident. It is an intentional act, a willful act of God. And it says, man, Adam became a living creature. All right, verse 8. Now that's pretty much where we were last week. Now let me begin. Verse 8, and the Lord God, now notice again, that's Yahweh Elohim. It's not another name of God. It's not, well, this is another count of creation. Some other God did it. That's ludicrous to look at it that way. The text does not demand that. It's just saying God is explaining more of who he is. He's not only Elohim, the creator. He's Yahweh, the self-existent, self-sufficient creator. Planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man with whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's some discussion whether you got two trees or whether the tree of life is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It seems like there are two. 
But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the focal point, as you will see in just a minute. Verse 10, verse 14. Just let me read that. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Okay, that tells us how it's nourished. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. We do not know where that is. It flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdelium and Onyx stone are there. Verse 13, the name of the second river is the Gihon. There is a Gihon spring in Jerusalem, which is the main water source for Jerusalem. Whether that's the same, we just cannot determine that. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. In the Bible, Cush is Ethiopia. But whether we should understand it that way, it's just, it is impossible to reach a conclusion about that. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. We do know where the Tigris River is. We do know where the Euphrates River is. There's a really, really, really interesting way to look at this. And I am not going to, I am not demanding this at all. And the text isn't demanding this. It's really kind of interesting if you think of the Middle East. Well, that's the Mediterranean Sea, okay? And here is Sea of Galilee, here's the Dead Sea, here's the Jordan River. Over here is the Nile River. And over here is the Tigris and Euphrates River, okay? So we just read that the Tigris and Euphrates River are part of that four-river system that flows out of Eden. Um, if Cush is Ethiopia, then that river that is down here, which some have posited that Eden was the entire eastern Mediterranean. That would make sense. I mean, it's, it's possible. The text does not demand that. But because this is where God is going to begin, or let me rephrase it, because this is where the human race will begin to populate the world because, as you, I'm sure, know, the Tower of Babel is right here and what will become Babylon. And we know a great deal about Egypt because of you know so much of the Old Testament deals with Egypt and so on. So it's just it's just an interesting hypothesis. This is one of those things. I'm gonna die for that. Because the text is not clear, it doesn't demand that. But if Cush is the way it is used in other parts of, of the ancient Near Eastern world, that, that label Cush is really referring to the area of what today would be Ethiopia, the very you know southern part of the Nile Valley. It's just a funny, funny, interesting, anyway, view. So now don't die for that. Don't walk out of there saying, Ekman said that's what it is. I didn't say that. It's just we do know where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are, but the other two, it, it, it's just, it's unclear. But that it is in what today we call the Middle East is clear. Eden would have been in the Middle East. That's clear. So whether it was this tiny little spot about the size of this room, or whether it was a really significant chunk of land it like that. It is very interesting, and it's an interesting theory because there is disagreement on where it mm. was. 
And so why not say it's all these places? The other thing is that God kicked them out of the garden. Well, did he? Did they move, or did the garden disappear? That's why we can't find it today. God puts an angel there to guard against them going to the tree of, of life and true knowledge of good and evil. That's true, but there is no. And if you ever see on the History Channel someone that says, "I found the Garden of Eden." Probably don't watch the program. I mean, you can if you want, but you're going to burn brain cells and waste an hour when someone doesn't really have the proof. But so, I mean, just it's up to you. But be be kind of skeptical when somebody says, "I found the Garden of Eden." That's my con- conviction is that if the Lord really wanted us to find the Garden of Eden, we, you know, there'd be pretty crystal clear clarity. When you go, I mean, I've been to Israel many, many times, and you go, there are so many sites. There's absolutely no doubt this is the site that's being talked about in the Bible. There's just no doubt about it. There's not that certainty with the Garden of Eden. We just don't know. I know God, for God and his purposes, it just isn't that important that you you find it. It's just not big of a deal, for him at least. So all you're seeing here, and in a way, perhaps verse 10 through verse 14, is just making a comment about the lush abundance of what God has created. We can get hung up on trying to figure out the place names and so on, and that it's okay. You know, it's part of what God's told us. It's right for us to take out a map and see if we can figure out. But what is really important is it's describing the lush, fertile, astonishing abundance of what God has created, where he put Adam. Does Adam have any needs? Does Adam want for anything? I mean, the the answer is no. What God has done is he said to him, I'm creating a world that has lush fertility and abundance of everything, and I'm putting you there as my dominion steward, taking you back to chapter 126 and following. And he's just giving us a description. And so what, he see, what we see next is the assignment God gives to him. Now we know he's created him. We know that he's created this lush abundance garden, abundant garden. Now what's his duty? When it says in verse 26 of chapter 1 that they're to have dominion authority to rule, what does that mean? Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Very, very important two words here, to work it and to keep it. I'm reading the ESV. They translate that Hebrew word, keep it. Men, that is used in other parts of the Old Testament as a worship word. So what we are seeing there is that the task and the assignment that God gives to Adam in being his dominion steward is not only to work it, you know, to work the ground, to you know, bring forth the abundance of crops, etc. But as he does it, it is to be worshipfully done. He is doing it to the glory of God. So God is giving him the invitation to be a creative cultivator of his world. Does God say to Adam in verse 15, Now, Adam, I only want you to cultivate and work the three sections around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm using sections because we live in the Midwest and everybody knows what a section of land is. 
But don't you dare go down to the South 40. Don't do that. I don't, no God does, does God set any limits on what he wants him to do? Does he set any geographical limits? No. It's like he's saying, you are my dominion steward. You have freedom to cultivate and work and keep my creation. It's like an invitation. As I am the creator, evidencing significant creativity, you evidence that same creativity. I'm setting no boundaries. There is one, and that's coming up in verse 16, but there are no other boundaries. Sometimes we skip over that. We miss that. God is giving him, let's put it another way. God is trusting him with significant authority, significant creativity. And I, I like that because I don't see any reason why we shouldn't look at it in the same way. We're, we're redeemed. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, as that old song says. We, we are now a new creation. Are we stewards of what God's given us? Yes. Do we have the freedom to be creative in how we manage it? Yes, but make sure you keep it. You do everything that I ask you to do to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So that gives just a refreshing, I think, purpose-filled way to look at what we do. I think it's fascinating that he gives us complete freedom. Absolutely. But he gives us duties with that freedom. Duty to uh, care for and keep the garden. And that we have the freedom to fulfill those duties out of our own free will. And that's crucial to God wanted. And I think that's the key point. He and I had this all planned out. We were going to segue. So verse 16 (laughs) is then the evidence of that. This is a very, very important verse. Because this verse indicates that human beings are ethical creatures. Human beings are not robots, are not automatons. I hesitate to use the word free will because, one, that phrase isn't in the Bible, and two, it's just so thwarted and and distorted in how to talk about it, to be honest with you. But God creates human beings with a moral, ethical responsibility and a moral ethical set of standards to follow. And it actually is only one. And the Lord commanded, it's the first time that's used in the, in the Bible, it's the first time the word command is used. God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Again, freedom. Almost limitless. But, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. You have total, complete freedom. The dominion, authority, and responsibility I've given you has no limits. But I do not want you to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only thing I'm asking. Do you trust me enough? Again, you have to remember, here's Adam. Does he have any needs? No. Has God provided? Every, yes, everything he needs to live, everything he needs to sustain, and the joy of walking personally and fellowship is there and all that. But, Adam, you are a moral, ethical creature. 
You're not like the whales or the lions or the orangutans or the amoebas or the insects. You are a moral, ethical creature. And I created in you my image. And I want you to willfully, intentionally obey me. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is it not true that God took an enormous risk here? Because what was the risk? That they would choose to eat of that tree. In effect, that they would declare their independence from God. I just, you have to, this is so familiar to us because we read this and study this and hear talks about it and Sunday school lessons when we were little children all the way up. You're just so familiar with this, but just don't forget why verse 16 is so important. God is saying something about the nature of the human race. You're not robots. You're not automaton. You have responsible freedom. That's the phrase I like to use. You have responsible freedom. But in giving you that capacity of responsible freedom, you could choose to rebel against me. I've given you everything you need. It isn't going to be lack of something that you're going to choose to rebel me rebel against me. It isn't because you don't have, and just fill in the blank, whatever it is. Because you see, obedience to this singular command necessitates a very significant degree of trust. To trust God. Daryl. Yeah, because of that, why did, why did God not wait until he had created Eve, and so he could share it with both of them at the same time because of the magnitude of that importance. Now, it doesn't say that it, it could have been an omission. <clears throat> we can't, we, we know it. Yeah, I don't think it's it done is. In any of the walks along the way, but it's not recorded. No, I, you're right, and you're asking a very, very profoundly important question. <clears throat> And I think the reason that it is explaining it to us this way is because of Romans chapter 5, verse 12. God puts the blame for the rebellion against him on Adam's shoulders because Adam received the revelation and was to teach it and model it and show it. It's one of the, there are four major pieces of evidence. This is the first one that God gives primary responsibility to the man. It's a very unpopular thing to say today. People don't want to talk about that. But that primary responsibility for moral leadership in the family, which God is about to create, is on the shoulders of the man. We don't like to talk about that. It's a very unpopular way to put it. But the text is making that clear to us. So that when Eve in chapter 3 is tempted, it says of her, she is deceived. It does not say that about Adam. Adam is not deceived. 
Adam willfully and intentionally declares his independence from God by taking the fruit. Instead of screaming at Eve, don't do that. God made it clear we are not supposed to take that. And so she's deceived by the evil one. Say, Adam is not deceived. 12, verse 12. So is Adam then giving in to temptation willfully? Absolutely. But he's not, he's not, it does not say of Adam he's deceived, which is fascinating. What does God say? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now that is very, very important to get that translation correct. Every word is important. You shall surely die. That adverb, surely. It's very important because when Eve quotes God, she leaves it out. She doesn't use that word. You'll see that coming up in chapter 3. But God is saying, he's declaring it. It's, it's forceful. There's no lack of clarity. You shall surely, most certainly, without any question, bank on it, die. I mean, I'm fleshing out. <laughs> I mean, he just wants to be really clear. This is, if you choose to eat this, it's going to have profound. Found consequence. Okay, now how do we understand death or die? It has two dimensions to it. There's spiritual death and there's physical death. Spiritual death is separation from God. Physical death is the separation of the body and the spirit or the soul, whatever you want to call that. So you you have God saying, and, and, and we'll see that coming up, that death in terms of Adam and Eve and the, and the immediate consequence, they die. What does it mean they die? They're separated from God. You see, immediately God comes walking in the garden, and where are Adam and Eve? Hiding from him. They were running away from him because of the guilt of their sin. And then the physical death is, is what you know, follows. Uh, later on. My wife often says, you know, I think I mentioned this, my wife has said many times or her said, Adam and Eve are the only human beings that know what they lost. You know, you and I know what we gained, but they lost it. <laughs> and I mean, just, just oof, man, I just, I can't imagine, we're not in chapter three yet, but I just can't imagine what that must have been like to know and see the evidence of what they had done. Jim, you said that God take a risk. Well, with his foreknowledge, he knew, but it's still Adam's. Is this your position? It was still Adam's option to do as he would do. How would how would you? Oh, Fred, why are you asking such? <laughs> <laughs> When I use the term risk, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm obviously putting in human terms in the sense that uh, God, in a, in, a, in a very real sense, and he's, I don't think it happened this way, we'll just pretend, when God is trying to decide what kind of world am I going to make? What, what, how am I going to make humans? I mean, I, again, I'm not sure this is how it works, but I'll just pretend it did. 
You know, well, let's see. What are my options? I can create humans that are going to be like robots and just, you know, at my command, they do what I want. Wait, bang. Okay, do this. Okay, do it. You know, I'd say, okay, well, that's not love. That's not fellowship. The love and communion of God's own for all eternity, Father, Son, Spirit, that's not love. You're just creating something that's going to be like a servant, like, you know, when we create a robot today, because we can do that. Robotics is a big thing. You just tell them what to do and they do it. They don't contemplate, they don't think, they don't express, they don't kiss you, they don't love you, they don't hug you. I mean, you can make them do that, but that's your forcing it. So God is saying, if I, who am a being, First John 4, God is love. If I'm, a, if I'm a God of love and I want to create image bearers, then I don't want them to, I don't want to force them. I want them to choose to love me, which involves obedience. So that's what I mean by risk. God had it in choosing to create humans like that, that means he is saying that they may choose to rebel against me. And your word is correct. In God's omniscience, God knew that they would choose to rebel against him. So God then also chose, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us, before the foundation <coughs> of the world, God chose to put in operation his plan of redemption which would ultimately provide reconciliation to those who accept his gift. I mean, it's, that's how you just start working through it theologically. But if God is going to create human beings who choose to love him, then that means that he will be creating human beings who will choose to rebel against him, which would break his heart, as it says in Jeremiah did, but at the same time, you know, his plan in centered in his love. I love the human race so much, I will do everything I can to win them back, including my son dying on a cross to pay the price for their sin. Can I? Oh, I'm sorry. But I was just, you had your hand up. So, Lucifer was cast out from the heavens and had to have a place to be, so the physical creation was made, and Lucifer was cast from the heavens to physical creations, and so with him being in the physical creation, then it's it's almost anticipated that he is not going to lie low and, and, and not exert himself, and, and uh, so that, that may be part of the overall plan, and that's a creation and a, another, another chaos, which God will then work eventually through the death of his son to, to bring back in order. Yes, the only, uh, and what you basically said is correct, the only thing missing from that is that the scriptures do not explain to us when the rebellion of Satan occurred. That he chose rebellion is clear because you have God doing what he's doing in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and in chapter 3, the serpent shows up. And Revelation 12, 9 tells us the serpent of old is the Satan, it's the devil, it's all those titles for him or not. And so it, the, the choice of Satan, and if Revelation 12 is correct, a third of the angels follow him, it just doesn't tell us when that occurred. But you are also correct that although that struggle if you will, between God and Satan is cosmic. And Satan has access to God. Job 1 makes that clear. Yet the primary focus of this rebellion is on planet Earth, not on Mars. 
or the series of new planets that they keep finding. It's just incredible what Hubble telescope is enabling us to discover. But the rebellion is on this planet. That's the center of the rebellion, it seems. And Satan is, uh, from Genesis 3, Satan is energizing and organizing a rebellion. And the fundamental question of chapter 3 of Genesis is, are God's image bearers going to join this rebellion? That's the question of chapter 3. Because Satan shows up, and the words that are used to describe him in verse 1 are really important words, which we'll get to that. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he's testing these image bearers. Do they really, really believe what God has said to them? Or can I get them to join the rebellion with me? And you know what happened? They joined the rebellion. But God is laying out because their moral, I can't believe it's almost 25 over it, because they're moral ethical creatures, he lays out, I'm asking you to do one thing because you love me. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that. Can you trust me enough for that? Because if you choose, that day you will be separated from me and you will physically die. So, I mean, it's very clear. There's one command. There's not, there's not pages and pages and books and books. It's just one. Please trust me enough. Don't eat. So it's a test. It's a, God says you're a moral, ethical creature. And so, verse 18. Okay, now, you with me? I mean, any? All right. Now, verse 18 through the end of the chapter is where we get to the account of God creating this institution. And we see a statement that makes sense in light of what we saw in chapter 1. And the Lord God said, God makes the first evaluative statement that has a negative connotation to it. It is good, is good, is good, is good, is good. He says that in, the, in, in chapter 1. But now he says, you know, it is not good. Remember how good is. Good is defined in, in this section as that which is conducive to order, stability, and life. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now that word helper is one of those words, I think almost all of your translations are going to have that usually the normal way it's translated. It's a wonderful word. When you say it in English to a woman, or you say that in English about a woman who is to be a man's helper, that sounds demeaning. It sounds insubordinate, it, or uh, that you're subordinate to it, that you're inferior. That's how it's interpreted today. Oh, that's a, that's a demeaning term. A helper? Um, it's just so unfortunate that we take that word which we translate as helper without really studying it, because that term is used of God in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, many times. That God is our helper. So that certainly doesn't mean something demeaning about God, or that God is subordinate to us, for goodness sakes. So what does it mean? A helper, it's one, and this is really, really important, it's one who adds 
strength to your weakness. That's not demeaning. And so from this term helper, we get a, a term that we often use that a man and a woman coming together in marriage, which is where this passage is headed, it's headed in verse 24 and 25 to Mary, that this is a complementary union. Now don't make that an I, where you're paying a compliment. Make it an E, <laughs> a complementary. Complementary union, and, and that is, mm-hmm. so, so to me, that's the word I always use in my premarital counseling, that God is joining you together into a complementary union where you will be much stronger together than if you remained apart. Because each adds where the one is weak or deficient, the other is strong, and you come together, you're stronger together than if you were apart. That's what God's doing. It is not good for the man, gender-specific man, to be alone. For my world to be populated and filled with a world of order, stability, and image bearers all over the place, i got to do something more. Now, the only issue is Adam doesn't get that. He doesn't understand that. He's loving it. He loves what he's doing. I mean, he's he's ahead of everything. He's doing all these, cultivating the land. He's having a great time. I don't need anybody. It's just you and me, God. I'm making all this up, but in a way, that's that's God has to show Adam that he is alone. So how does God do that? Now, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what we call them. Just go back to Genesis 1 is the order in which God did it and how he did it. But God created it. They don't. Adam didn't create these things. Adam didn't make them up. They, God created them. Now he brings them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man called every living creature. That was its name. He gave names to the livestock, the birds of the heavens, every beast. That's really, really important. That's extremely important. That is the role of a theocratic steward to give name to and establish authority over all of God's world. That's what he's doing. He is God's theocratic steward. God isn't naming them. God isn't creating the categories. God created the life and said, okay, that's your responsibility. You name them. You have authority over them. But something else happened there. That Adam found there was no helper fit for him. The object lesson was he looked at the lions, they're in pairs. He looked at the giraffes, they're in pairs. He looked at the insects, they're in pairs. He looked at the rabbits, they're in pairs. Lots of them. No. But I mean, he, he looked, and that's what he sees. But in addition to him doing what God wanted him to do, to evidence and exercise his dominion authority, he also saw, I'm alone. I'm the only part of God's living creation that's alone. So he now understands what God had declared in verse 18. 
Verse 21, so the Lord God, notice it just keeps repeating it. Lord God, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place, its place with flesh. It's a very difficult Hebrew word there. Uh, it, it may be a rib, it may just be from his side that isn't important, but it's usually translated ribs. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And so God creates, God shapes, and out of woman comes, excuse me, out of man comes woman. That is really, really, really important. They are of the same flesh, but different. He's not, He's not creating something else. He's creating out of the man a woman. I mean, from, uh, from the, the river of, of, of Adam. Okay, and it tells us in verse 22 that he brought her to the man. That is exactly the same Hebrew phrase you see in verse 19, brought them to the man. And then the man said, now the only problem with verse 23 is it's poetry. It's, it's like a song. This is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Does that do anything for you? You know, it's like, okay. I get... the, the Ekman paraphrase of that is Adam sees this gorgeous, voluptuous creature. <laughs> That God has created, and he brings her to him. And at the top of his lungs, with a joyful exuberance, he declares, this is it. <laughs> this is what I've been missing. He said, whoa, man. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's it. That's another way of paraphrasing. I mean, it's, I mean Adam, the importance of verse 23 is Adam really understands what God has done. It isn't, who is this? Uh, who's she? What's this all? No, he really understands what God's done. That God graciously, magnanimously, and wonderfully creates a helper. Now, you did say that there was something that man Adam missed. <laughs> he got that part. Yeah, he got this part. He got that, yeah, part. He got that part. He got that part. I mean, it's just... It, again, it's, uh, it's just really, it's hard to see that because it's poetic type of, of, of declaration. But this is at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, because she is, he understands that. She looks like him, but yet she's different than him. And the, the Hebrew word woman is isha, man is ish. They're very unique words. They're not the typical words throughout the Bible, I should say, of the Old Testament. For gender specific, so it's a little. It's just to demonstrate in the Hebrew that she comes. Isha comes from Ish. Isha comes from Ish, and it's just unique, and so it's it's really quite powerful. All right, now are you with me? Any questions? Because I've got seven and a half minutes to do twenty four and twenty five, and I'm a little skeptical I can get it done. But can you let me do it? What's the first word of verse 24? Therefore. Therefore. Moses intentionally 
wants us to draw a conclusion. What God just did is a pattern and a model for the rest of human history. Do you understand that last sentence that I just uttered? Did you understand what I just said? What God just did is profoundly, deeply, transformationally important for the rest of human history. It's like Moses Moses wrote, Moses saying, don't miss this. He could have stopped. The period could have been after man, and he goes on to Genesis 3, but he doesn't do that. Moses makes a theological commentary on what God just did. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast. Some of your translations have cleave to his wife. By the way, that Hebrew word, cleave or hold fast, is a covenant term in the Old Testament. This is not a superficial, shallow relationship. This is a covenant relationship. God did it this way. And they shall become one flesh. Now, I'm, I'm starting to preach. I've got to stop this. So I, I, there are really two, excuse me, there are three really important words here. Leave, cleave or hold fast, and then the phrase become one flesh. I want to stress this. Again, what Moses is doing, this now, what God just did, establishes the pattern for the rest of human history. Regardless of the situation, regardless of whether it's an agricultural society, regardless of whether it's a a clannish society, regardless of whether it's an extended family relationship, When a man marries a woman, there is that conscious awareness we are establishing a new family unit. Even if you live next door to your mom and dad, there's a conscious awareness that you are leaving that family and establishing your family. And the the essence of that and the nature of this is this is now you cleave. It's, It's a covenant term. You are now entering into a binding covenant relationship. And uh, leave, cleave, past tense, shall become, verb tense changes. You could paraphrase that. And for the rest of their lives, they will be in the process of becoming one. Now, the one flesh union is obviously sexual intercourse. That's the way God made the human body, male and female and all that. But that's only a part of it. It's a very important part. But that's not, if all you see one flesh is just a sexual union, you miss the whole point. That's not the point. It is symbolized in, and it's beautifully, in terms of romantic love and giving yourself to one another, all that stuff. It's, but that's only the beginning of it. It's the merging of, of personalities and temperaments. You still maintain your identity. My wife is still Peggy. She's been Peggy for 47 years that I've been an actor, but she's still that unique person with her own qualities, her own characteristics, her own idiosyncrasies, et cetera. And I believe me, I'm the same. But you come together into a union where your strengths, where I'm strong, she's weak. Where I'm weak, she's really strong. And in my Covenant uh, People book, my last book I wrote, I dedicated the book to Peggy. And I said, next to the Lord Jesus Christ, she's God's greatest gift to me. And I, that's why I wrote it that way, because she is. Because this complement, 
complementary union is what is described to us and what God did and what Moses is saying. This is the way it's supposed to be. Now, you can choose not to do it this way, which the human race, you know, you see in the Old Testament example after example after example of a man having several wives. Good idea. It worked well. You will search in vain for any record in the Old Testament of a polygamous or bigamous relationship being positive. It isn't. It's not positive. There's no positive benefit to it. Very clear. God is saying, this is what I want. I'm creating it this way. And I still have a minute. And so this, and this is it's so clear that what he's doing, this becomes the model. This is the paradigm. This is what God is creating. He's creating the institution of marriage and family. It's the first, and presumably, it's the bedrock. And if this doesn't work well, nothing else is going to work well. And then he adds, and I, I, I will... Well, let me say this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's interesting. Again, he could have put the period after one flash. We get it. Okay, we got the paradigm. But he adds something. They were naked. When sin enters the race, in Genesis 3, what is the very first thing the text says about Adam and Eve. They realized they were naked. That's, we'll read that next week. That's the very first, as soon as they sense it, and they realized they were naked. And they try to cover themselves up. And they're not ashamed. It's an, incre- it's an incredible verse. There's no self-consciousness. There's no selfishness. There's no self-centeredness. There's no self-indulgence. This is a relationship that is totally about the other. They are so other-centered. There's no shame and there's no guilt. They totally give themselves to one another. Isn't that beautiful? That's what he's saying. You know, in our 21st century, we read the word naked and we think something nefarious about it. No. No. It's an incredibly positive statement. There's no sin, there's no guilt, there's no shame. They could just freely and totally give themselves to one another. And men, listen to me, I've got to stop. Every time Jesus is asked a question about marriage or sexuality, every time Paul addresses the issue of marriage or sexuality in the New Testament, they always quote these two verses. 24 and 25. What does that tell us? When you want to talk about marriage, don't look at the Levitical code. Start with the creation ordinance of God. That's where you start. So this is the bedrock. Now, once sin enters, and you're just going to see, then there are going to be all kinds of distortions, all kinds, but this is still God's ideal. And like I, like I said, I've been married 47 years to Peggy. And, I mean, do we have disagreements? Yes. Do we see things differently? Yes, 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 yes. But living with a person for 47 years, you're going to have lots of disagreements. Conflict is a part of life. It's how you resolve the conflict, how you deal with the differences. 
because the greatest, greatest gift for me is my wife, who is very different from me in every way. She brings balance to my life. She keeps me straight. And every one of you around the table say the same thing about your wife. Because what God is saying here is what he is working in each one of our marriages. The problem is Adam and Eve didn't have sin yet. And the beauty of this is what is expressed in these two verses. But God's get, trying to get us back to this. And the only way to get back to this is in the new creation. I got to stop. I'm trying, I hope the way we presented it, chapter one and chapter two, there's such famous, everybody reads these. But I'm trying to get you to really understand what is going on in these chapters. This is foundational stuff. And I think you get that. So I'm going to pray and we got to get out of here because I'm already late, but I didn't want to stop. Lord, thank you for this incredible passage of scripture. It really helps us to understand what you did, why you did it, and how you did it. And we see from chapter 2 that the apex of this particular passage is the creation of a wondrous institution, a complementary union between a man and a woman, uh, equally bearing your image, equally having dominion authority, but they're different. In every way, a male is different from a female. And your intent is that they come together in a marriage, which is manifested by the sexual union, but it's far, far deeper than that. It's the merging of two personalities with all their idiosyncrasies and all their distinctives together. They're all maintained. They're still there, but in a complementary relationship. It's a beautiful thing that you created, Lord, and all of us around this table who are married. This, this is the ideal force. This is the goal for us. This is what we want our marriages to be like. Because you created it, these are the ways in which you lay down the basic parameters for it. So in the new creation in Christ, we have the capacity to have marriages that get close to this ideal. So we thank you for that. A great challenge for us, but it also helps us to understand why you did what you did. We pray that you'll be with us now as we go through our separate ways uh, in this remarkable day in April that you've created. Thank you for sharing it with us. Now help us to represent you well in everything we do and say in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.